Good morning. You know, for some of you, you probably don't realize it, but it's been five months, about five months, since I've been in this worship service, and they still let me preach. So we, Kathy and I, have been working with the College Park Greenwood congregation for about five months, and have just, it's been a delight, but we also would say that we miss you. Um, and just even walking around, I see people that I know. But then it also struck me, there's probably some of you that have never seen me before. Like, how many of you have come in the last five months? Could you raise your hand? You've come to, yeah, hi, good to, good to meet you. You've become some of my yeah, closest friends or whatever. So, wow, well, it's, it's pretty neat to see what God's doing here and in Greenwood. And it's, it's a privilege to be able to be here and share the word with you. So I want to start off with, uh, and, and by the way, this is free. You don't have to pay for this, no extra charge. I wanted to do a science lesson because that is not one of my areas of expertise. As a matter of fact, I keep thinking when I do this, I'm probably going to screw it up. But that's all right. It's going to be a science lesson for you students. If you're looking for a science project this year and you think, I don't know what to do, this is it. All right? Got it for you. You're, and by the way, if you're a student and you're, this week is extreme teens, you need to be here for extreme teens earlier on the week. Anyway, that's a little public announcement. So here's the, uh, in 1493, there was a man was born. His name was Nicholas Copernicus. So you can already tell that I'm a pretty knowledgeable scientist type person. Nicholas Copernicus in the 1500s pronounced and made a proclamation that what the world had always thought was that the sun revolved around the earth. See how that goes? Which is what I observed yesterday. Sun started here in the east and it moved to the west. I didn't move. Did you? I mean, I just was there. The sun moved around the earth, and he said, no, 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 no. Do I have that right? Yeah. The earth, I knew I was, the earth goes around the sun. The sun is the center of the universe, and the big word for that is heliocentric, right? Which comes from Greek, I think. And, and that rocked the scientific world, so there you go. When I was a junior in college, I had a professor, his name was Jim Greer, some of you have heard of him because he was very influential in the early days of College Park. He rocked my theological world because he, in a philosophy class, dealing with those heady questions of what is truth, how do you know, those kind of things, he argued this. Most of us live our lives as if we are the center of the universe and God exists for me, that my world is at center and God revolves around me. And he said, here's what the Bible says, you're not the center of the universe. God is. And your life is to revolve around God. And that was theocentric, God-centered view of life. And it rocked my world. And I came to College Park about 30 years ago. Some of you may have been here, not very many of you. And it was like the hardest time that I've had in life so far. And the thing that sustained me wasn't that I'm the center of the universe and God's there to meet my needs, but God's the center of the universe. He knows what's going on. It's about him. It's not about me. Which is what we're going to talk about this morning. It's pretty, I'm just going to leave this here. And I mentioned first service. I'm more than willing to sell these at the end of third service to the highest bidder. And if you don't get it, then you can go to Walmart and get one. You ought to have one of these at home. You ought to remind yourself every morning when you wake up, you know what? I'm not the center of the universe. Wake up to that one. God is. And live your life as if that's true. Because you know what? It is true. And our series this summer is dealing with the attributes of God and the goal and the mission 
of the church is to be a community of people, the center of whom is God, not us. <laughs> it's God's church. It's God's people. Make him the center. Get your life revolving around him. And we're in Acts 17, and you heard a little portion of that read. It is a delightful and complex, and for me, spending a fair amount of time studying the scriptures, I think we could spend like three hours and just start to dabble into this text. We're not going to do that, but here's what we are going to do. We're going to look at it. I've divided it into four sections, and maybe you got an outline when you came in. Four sections, and I've entitled them Signs That You Know God, or another way to look at it is Signs That God Is The Center Of Your World And You're Not. There's, there's four of them mentioned in this text. The first one is this, and that is that you're jealous for God. You're jealous for him, and that which is an interesting word. Look at verse 16 of Acts 17. It says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and Paul had been on a missionary journey. He was coming down from the northern part of Greece. He had been to Philippi and Thessaloniki, and he had been to Berea and a couple of other places. He would later go to Corinth. And I only know that because a group of us from College Park made this trip, and I see part of that group back there. And I, How many would have been on that trip with us about, what was it, four years ago? The Nelsons were. Are there anybody else in here? All right, I feel an affinity with them. We went to Athens. Here's a picture of, when you go to Athens, this couple aren't there very often, but we were there a couple years ago. And again, for those of you that don't know, that's me in my younger days, like four years ago, and my beautiful wife. And in the background is the Parthenon, which is an unbelievable ancient structure. It was built hundreds of years before Christ, and it's been renovated a little bit. It's a temple, and it's one of the great temples of the ancient world, and frankly, it's a great temple of the current world that was erected to Athena and others, and we went up there, and it's almost like it, it takes your breath away. And then the next picture is you go down from that Parthenon, and the next picture, you go down from the Parthenon, and there you go, and there's this place, that, and, and you read about it a little bit, it's called the Areopagus, which is multisyllabic, you know, it's like, and it's, it's a location, or it may have been a group of people, and they were kind of the heady people of Athens, and they would get together and talk about really important things, like, you know, is Andrew Luck going to be able to be the quarterback this year, and they would talk about things like, what's life all about, and how do we know things, and you can see they would usually have a teacher like there was teacher David is proclaiming to the group, hey, here's Here's some really profound things to talk about. Paul was in that location, and this event that we're going to talk about this morning occurred right there 2,000 years ago. The backdrop was this pagan temple. Paul's in Athens. Now look at the next statement in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked, that jumped out at me as I was studying this text. He was provoked. Another translation option was he was irritated. I like provoked better, but then I inserted my, and it's really not a translation, interpretation. He was jealous for God, and he saw the competitors of God, they were called idols, and he said, I'm not happy with this. This is wrong. I'm jealous for God. I looked up jealous in the English dictionary, and it said, vigilant, vigilant. 
get that right, vigilant in maintaining or guarding something. He was so committed to God that he looked at the competitors of God and he was in distress. In College Park, I asked myself this question, when is the last time that I was irritated or that I was so jealous for God that when I saw the competitors of God, my spirit welled up within me because I did not want to see them competing with God. When, when's the last time you had, when's the last time you turned on TV and you saw the TV blaring at you and telling you all these things that are lies about this will make you happy, that'll make you happy, this will make your life full, etc. When's the last time you went around in the world that you live in to your neighbors and you saw people worshiping non-God idols, and we don't call them idols, but they are, and within your spirit you said, I'm jealous for God. I, I'll confess this text was convicting to me because I go around life just a little too passive. And here's what the people of God that know God are jealous for God. He is there all in all. So here's what Paul does. Look at verse 17. Man, if you don't think this is practical, look at it. So he went in his corner and said, oh, well, those poor stupid people, they're worshiping these crazy idols. He didn't do that. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout people. He went, that, that's probably saying he went to like church. <laughs> And he talked about God in church. Wow, there's a shock. He went to people that might have been at least a little bit open to the discussion, but that's not all. And it just says it really quick. Luke records this. He went to the Jews and the devout persons, and then, and in the marketplace every day with some who happened to be there. Every day he went to the marketplace. And, and it, when we were over there in Athens, the marketplace was called the Agora. Every one of the Greek cities had it. The Agora was like this place where all the stuff is going on, you know, the commercial stuff. It was like Broad Ripple. It was like downtown Zionsville. It was like Indianapolis. It was like New York. It was like, this is where stuff goes on. You know, people do things, and they're all there, and they got stuff to do. And Paul went to them in that agora, in that marketplace. And then, you see, there's a third place he went, or at least he connected with, in verse 18. Some of the Epicureans, you know those guys, or maybe not. Probably, if some of you probably remember your Western civilization, the Epicureans, you know, God is distant, eat, drink, and be merry, just live it up. And then the Stoics, they were the opposite of that. It's like, oh man, this fatalistic world. And these two were probably in the Areopagus, and they're debating, you know, they're fight. And, and they wanted to, Paul went to them. They're, they're the tough guys. They're the ones with the hard questions. <laughs> he went to the easy, I think, this is the way I interpret it, to the Jews and the devout people. He went to the marketplace. That's just everyday people, your next door neighbors. And then he said, you know what? I'm even going to go to the people that are the tough nuts, those guys who are going to ask hard questions. And he went there because he was provoked because he was jealous for God. And I think if I knew God like God is, I would be jealous for him. I thought... I know a little bit about being jealous, and jealous for, not jealous of. I'm jealous for Kathy. And those of you that don't know me, that was a picture of her. You know, the better half. That's maybe not always true. It is true in this case. I'm jealous for Kathy. Matter of fact, if you want to say that I did a terrible sermon this morning, I'm going to feel bad. But you can say it, and that's, you know, all right, I've got to be tough skin. Don't tell me something bad about Kathy. Don't, don't do it. Because then, all of a sudden, a part of me comes out that may not be totally characteristic of me. Thank you. I can see some others. 
saying, just don't do it. I'm jealous for her, and I'm jealous for her, so when I'm jealous for her, actually, first service, I choked up a little bit, and I thought, all right, I'm tougher this service. <laughs> so I want to prioritize her. I'm not saying I do it perfect, so guys, don't look at me. I mean, and girls don't say, oh, he's the best ever. I'm not, and you can talk to my wife, although she has a level of jealousy for me, too. I defend her. I'll tell you about her. You want to know? She, matter of fact, where she is now is she's doing keyboards at, at the incubator down there, and she's doing her thing, or they're probably listening to me on a tape down there. Um, I want to spend time with her. When I go on vacation, I want to be on vacation with her. I am jealous for Kathy, and I ask Myself, am I jealous for God? Or is he just a, like a nice little addition? What's the center of my life? Is it God, or is it my wife, or is it my job, or is it my kids, or is it my health? Here's what Paul thought. And by the way, you watch the life of Paul. Man, health was not that big a deal to him. Like, go ahead, stone me, because I'm, I'm, I'm coming up again, you know. Um, yeah, it'll be a little painful. He went through suffering. He went through all kinds of stuff, and he was jealous for God. So College Park, <laughs> so we're doing the summer series, and you go on vacation, and you do all the stuff you do, you know. If God is the center of my life, I'm jealous for him. Here's what I find intriguing. So I did a little study on the word jealousy in the ESV. It's used 33 times in the Bible. It's only used once of a person being jealous for God. It was a priest in the Old Testament in Leviticus. Most of the other time, it's God is jealous for me. And I don't know about you. That blows my mind. The way I think about Kathy, the way I think I ought to think about God, he's jealous for me. He wants me. And I then just want to almost gag and say, so why am I not jealous for him? Why not? So we're talking about what does it mean to know God? One of the signs is you're jealous for God. Here's sign number two. It's in verse 22 and following, and that is you recognize God for who he is. Paul was jealous for him, and then he said, all right, I'm going to explain God. When I explain him, I'm going to explain him as who he is. He's the center of the universe, not necessarily as what they want me to say. And watch how Paul does it. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, you saw a picture of that 2,000 years after Paul was there. David was there that time. He said this, men of Athens... By the way, one of the things I like about Paul and his evangelistic technique is he could have said, I'm going to tell you all the things wrong with your idols. You know, those idols are stupid. I mean, bottom line, they are stupid. He didn't say that. He tried to find a bridge. How can I connect with you? Let me find something you're interested in. So here's what he said. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. You guys are religious guys. Yeah. You know what? Every person in the world is religious in one sense. There are things that they hold valuable and that they worship. You're very religious. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Agnostic, or agnostic is what the original would say. It's, it's kind of like, man, if you're pluralistic, I don't know if you've ever known of a culture that's pluralistic, meaning you can believe whatever you want, doesn't really matter, just believe. Or if you lived in a world that's tolerant, don't tell me that I can't. Those kind of things. 
then, then you may as well include one other little idol in all the idols, and it's just in case I missed one, let me just, we'll entitle it to the unknown God. And as a matter of fact, some of the archaeological studies done over there in digs have found inscriptions like that. Let's just cover all the bases. Well, here's what Paul does. He covers the base. <laughs> he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, as agnostics, this and you could translate, this one I proclaim to you. And church, we are to be the people of God who go to a world that worships idols, and we are to say, there's one God, and I'm going to proclaim this God to you. That's the mission of the church. And here's how he, here's how he describes it. And, and here's the way I entitled it. This God... This, this is an interesting first step of evangelism. This God doesn't need you, but you need him. <laughs> you need a God who doesn't need you. Here's good news for us this morning, church. God doesn't need you. So if you came in here this morning and said, God needs me to sit in this chair and worship him because if he doesn't, there's going to be some deficiency. He doesn't. He doesn't. Watch how Paul develops this. And, and hang on, all right? Don't check out yet. Here's what he says in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, that's a mouthful too. Do you think creation doesn't matter? Creation matters a lot. God made everything that's not God. So it's all created. Being Lord of heaven and earth, so not only did he make it, but he's the king he doesn't live in temples made by man. And we just saw in probably one of the greatest temples ever built on planet Earth, the Parthenon. And I just can imagine Paul's pointing up there and saying, God doesn't live there. And they were probably like, eh. you know, they're scratching. They're, they're thoughtful people. He said, he doesn't dwell or live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul says, God doesn't need you. And he's given you everything you have. So pull out the things that God's not given you. Like, well, look, God, you didn't give me this or you didn't give me that. And the fact is God did. He's the sufficient cause for all that you have. You don't need God. Or excuse me, God doesn't need you, but you need him. And, you know, as I think about that, here's, here's an illustration that works for me, maybe it'll work for you. It's a grandchild illustration. Some of you that know me know that every illustration that I think of starts with a grandchild. And then sometimes I progress beyond that, but not usually, because I don't know, how do you progress beyond that? There's a little granddaughter, happens to be mine. Her name is Lila. She's 10 months old. She's delightful. I told the first service, she is the most beautiful baby on the planet. And then I saw these other babies and I thought, that's pretty good competition. Pretty good second place. Close second, but still second. Lila is delightful. Here's the fact of the matter. Lila needs somebody that doesn't need her. Because she came into the, into her, as a matter of fact, she went on vacation with us. Ten, she's 10 months old, and we had to rent a vacation spot. And I didn't say, all right, all right, Lila, how, how much are you contributing to this vacation spot? You know, reaching your diaper. And, and I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do that. Um, and it's like Lila, Lila contributed zero in terms of what we needed for our vacation. She didn't bring any food with her. Her mother gave her food. 
And it was disgusting food. I mean, it was like sweet potatoes and, and um, I don't know, some green stuff that was in there. Then Lila just ate it up, and I thought, what she really needs is a grandfather that gives her ice cream. That's what she, and that's her biggest need so far, and someday we're going to make that right. She needs someone that doesn't need her and church. We, the world, needs someone who isn't reaching out saying, you give me and I'll give back to you. You want to know what the, the, the religions of the world will argue for? The religions of the world will argue this, that you can, be, you can come into a relationship with a God if you do this, this, and this. You know, we'll have a list of things. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. <laughs> Here's the way the songwriter said it, that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And one of the great messages of the gospel of Jesus is you don't bring your stuff and say, Jesus, do I have enough stuff? Am I, are you ready for me? You come to Jesus and say, I got nothing. Will you take me? And you know what God says? I don't need you, but I want you. <laughs> and that's what we need. We need somebody that says, I don't need you, but I want you. Which is who God is. You see, there's a lot of things we think we need in life. And on some level, we do. You need a job if you're of a certain age. I told my kids that all along. You need a job. You need a job. Yeah, we need jobs. We need relationships. On some level, we need health. We need we need family, a lot of those things. And, and there's a sense in which we need all those things. But if you think those things that you need and that you enter into are going to fulfill all of your needs in life, you're going to be sadly mistaken. The one that will meet your needs is the one that doesn't need you. <laughs> and he wants to meet your needs. That's the God that Paul proclaimed on the Areopagus to the Athenians, and then he went on and he said, not only is God one who doesn't need you and you need him, but then, and here's another N word that fits pretty well, he's near. Now, now watch how Paul develops it. We've got to jump down a little bit. Go to verse 30. Paul says, the time of ignorance God overlooked. Then you've got to like the next word, if you've heard me preach before. It's the word, but... And those of you that have it, that probably feels awkward. And so I'm going to make you feel a little awkward. But there's that but of he's just flowing along. You've got a need. You've got this, this, uh, this need of a God who doesn't need you. And God's been patient. But listen to what the word of the Lord says. In that particular the time of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, first of all, if you know God, you're going to have a passion for him. You're going to be jealous for him. Secondly, you're going to know him for who he is. And in knowing him for who he is, you're going to realize, hey, God, you are so great. You don't need me, but you're near to me, and you want me to have access to you. And in being near to me, the, the, you're going to say, how in the world can I come into a relationship with you? If you go back a little bit in the text in verse 27, and, and even if you go back earlier, go to verse 26. He made from every man one nation of mankind. This God who doesn't need you made you, and he made from you every nation of mankind. And I, some of you know that I have this, this kind of 
desire that the church reflect what God intended in creation. And God didn't intend that there would be various different types of people, ethnicities that would be going different directions. From one man, Adam, all the, as a matter of fact, the Greek word is ethnos, all the ethnics came together and they were unified together as one because they had one creator, God, and, and, and that one creator, God, then says, you're gonna, I'm not going to need you. You're going to need me, so you're going to come after me. You're going to be searching for me. And, and that's exactly what they do, and you can see how the text goes. He made from one man every nation, in verse 26, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. And then I love this in verse 27, actually... He's not far away. You see, the God that calls you to repent is not far away, but most people are groping. They're trying to find him, and they're looking in all the wrong places. Here's what the people of God have found, and many of you are people who know Christ. You found that God is near to you. And let me just read a little quote out of this book that I found really fascinating. I just found it in the last year because it was just written in the last year or just published. It's called Steal Away Home. It's a story of Charles Spurgeon and Thomas Johnson. And many of us have heard of Charles Spurgeon. Almost none of us have heard of Thomas Johnson. Thomas Johnson was a slave in the United States and he, was, he lived at the time of the emancipation where he was freed from slavery. And by God's providence, he got to get on a boat and go over to England. And in England, he studied in Spurgeon's college to be a pastor. And Spurgeon interviewed him after he came over the sea. And he said this, Spurgeon said, so how long were you a slave? And he said, 28 years. And then Spurgeon said this, did you know Jesus when you were a slave? And Thomas said, yes. Jesus found me on a tobacco plantation in Virginia when I was a much younger man. And when I met him, he changed everything. <laughs> then he took a sip of tea and he said, see, when Jesus found me, he was all I had. After a long, hard day of work and sometimes during beatings at the whipping post, I knew Jesus was there. He was right there all the time. And you see, there's a God who doesn't need you, but he wants you, and he's near to you. And sometimes I think I need to read theologians that are a little out of my tradition, like a Thomas Johnson, an African-American theologian who studied over in England, and he came to this conclusion that even on the whipping stand, God is there. God's near. And yet we live in a world where people are groping around. You're going to go home today in your neighborhood, and there are going to be people groping to find God. Now, they don't even know that they're doing that. They're looking for happiness. They hope they can find it in their jobs, so they work 80-hour weeks. They hope they can find it in their families, so they divorce to try to say, maybe, maybe if I try something else, maybe that'll work. When they, when they find that they're at the whipping post or they're not experiencing health, they don't know what to do. They want to punt. And here's what the people of God would say to them. It's what Paul said. God is near, and the way you access that near God is by repenting. <laughs> That's the message of the gospel. Repent, which brings us to where I was previously in verse 30. You see, the God that you're supposed to be passionate about and jealous of, the God who doesn't need you but he wants you is near to you and you access him by repenting. So then I ask myself this question. What does that mean to repent? 
And repent is an interesting English word that comes from a, a Greek word, and the Greek word is a compound word that I wish we could bring over into English because it's more graphic. It, it has the word mind, nous, and then it has meta, which means against your mind or change your mind. It's a, it's a word picture. So my mind says, I'm going to find happiness when I've got enough money, when I'm healthy enough, when my relationships are good. All those will become my gods. And repentance is, change your mind. That's not going to provide happiness for you. That's not what you need. What you need is the center of your universe being God, not you. That's what you need. That's not just what you need. That's what the world needs. And then look at verse 31. And I, I like the scriptures because it'll have explanations. And the word because means here's the reason why you ought to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man who, has appointed, who was appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's why we, the people of God, and that we have a message to the world that we ought to repent is because the day of judgment is coming. Do you believe that? <laughs> do I believe that? I, I, you know, I do, because I'm a pastor, and if I don't believe that, you've got to fire me. But you know what? I'm a human, too, and so are you. Do you believe the day of judgment is coming? And, and there's different ways of looking at that. We can look at that really negatively, like God's going to damn people to hell. And, and on some level, there's some truth to that if you're not trusting in him. Let me give you another idea of what that, uh, that idea of judgment. God's going to judge evil. God is going to remove evil from this cosmos, from this world. The day of judgment is going to come. God is going to annihilate cancer. Well, we want to cheer for that, don't we? God is going to, yeah, you should, because some of you suffer from that. God's going to, he is, he's going to wipe it out. That's spoken of in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. He's going to do away with lust. He's going to do away with selfishness. He's going to do away with all those things that we hold as idols that get in the way of who he is. That's what judgment is. That's why the people of God ought to say this, judge God, judge, judge, judge. But the God who judges is the God who is risen from the dead the God who offers life to his people, the God who would say, you know what? You can escape that judgment. God's going to purge the earth of evil, but he's also going to bring life to the world. That's what the gospel is. It's a gospel of a life-giving God who is also a God who takes evil and, and, and is going to eventually destroy it and wipe it. And, and, and here's what my biggest challenge is. My biggest challenge is to live by faith, to repent on a daily basis, and to come to Jesus who offers resurrection life. That's what Paul said to them. Wow, what a message that is. You know, I don't, I don't know everybody here, obviously. <laughs> I've proved that already. Some of you may not have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You may be pursuing other idols. And I would today say, like Paul did, I'm going I'm to make this proclamation. Repent of pursuing those things that you would say are central to life and come to Jesus and make him the center of your life. And you can do that today and you should do that today. For those of us that call ourselves Christians, which I'm guessing are most of you, man, you ought to take inventory of your life. <laughs> I mean, there ought to be a repentance thing going on on a daily basis. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts. That means... Lord, we're sinful people. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And yet we live with our idols that we just kind of cling to. 
Because we need them, we think. You not only don't need them, you need somebody that doesn't need you. That's what you need. That's what I need. So if you know God, you're going to be jealous for God. You're going to recognize God for who he is. You're going to repent or recognize your need. And then here's the last thing. I'm going to do this really quickly. But this text ends in such a fun way. If you go to verse 32, Paul makes this big proclamation in the Areopagus, all these brilliant people, all these geniuses. And then here's what they say in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Ha! Paul, you're an idiot. Paul, you believe in resurrection? That's absurd. And I look around trying to look at everybody. Do you believe in the resurrection? Eh, I don't know. Nobody shakes their head. You know what? There's a lot of solutions to the problems of the world. Like go to a doctor, and hopefully they can come up with something. And by the way, we have some really phenomenal doctors here at College Park good for you, you're just not good enough. <laughs> and you're better than me, but you're not good enough. Or you can say, let's go to the educational system, or let's do this, or let's do that, or let's do whatever it is. You can find all those kind of idols. And then when somebody says, well, you know what, here's the actual solution to the world, and that is get rid of the evil in the world and bring new life. We need a resurrection. I'm getting old enough to say, I don't need my body to get fixed. I need a new body. Bring it on. And so does everybody in the world. And it isn't just a new body. I need a body with the full life that God gives for his people. And so I'm so thankful that by God's grace, I didn't mock when I heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some of them did. But others said, we'll hear more about this. Verse 33, Paul takes off. It's over. Look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. If I was Paul, I'd be thinking, man, I went to like this hardest place. I mean, it was like broad ripple times 20. You know, I mean, they're just agnostics. They don't care. And the grace of God comes to the hardest of people. I don't know what your neighbor's like. I don't know your neighbor. But God knows your neighbor. God doesn't need your neighbor. But God's near to your neighbor. And you got the message of the nearness of God to your neighbor who can repent. And you know what? Some of your neighbors will come to Christ because that's what God does. There were some men joined him and believed. Look, it continues on. Among whom were, and you would just expect this, Dionysius. Never heard of Dionysius. But he's in the Bible. I mean, like, wow, this guy got his name in the Bible. That's pretty good. And he was an Areopagite. I mean, like, wow, Areopagite, whatever in the world that means. He was well-known. He was a thoughtful guy. And then there was a woman. And in the ancient world, you don't use as evidence women. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible loves women. <laughs> so does God. God doesn't need women, but he wants women. God doesn't need men, but he wants men. They came to Christ, and they believed. So College Park Church, what a, what a beautiful text. A lot more to it. Let me give you these three applications really quick. This is going to be shotgun quick applications that I've already pretty much made, but I think you'll see them. First of all, let's be a church that does what we say our mission is, that we ignite a passion to follow Jesus. If I were to change that just for one Sunday, I would say that we are jealous for God. You want to know one thing about College Park Church? There's a group of people who are jealous for God. You can tell it. You can see it in them. That's the way they worship. That's the way they act. Isn't that what we want to be? We want to be that kind of people. So number one, work on your jealousy quotient so that you're more jealous for God. Number two, give up idols. 
Man, you ought to go home today and take an idle inventory and start scrapping that junk. Declutter. <laughs> yeah, and if you're not a believer, today's the day of salvation, man. Come, and the final decluttering of that idol is come to Jesus. Then third is this. Go share that God with the world. I mean, we've got some kits out there, and kits aren't magic, but it's just a way of us saying there's different ways you can go, kind of like Paul did, so you can make bridges that are going to connect with people to tell them about the God that you're jealous for. You would think that would be just a logical thing for the church to do, wouldn't you? So let's go do the logical thing, church, and let's have that passion for Christ, and let's repent of our sins, and let's do what Paul said, and man, let's get going to the, the marketplace to the, I mean, some of you will fit with the Epicureans, and some of you probably don't, and go to those ones that you're connected with, and let's share the gospel of grace. Oh, Father in heaven, it's been really encouraging for me to be back with this body of people, to see friends, but what really is encouraging is to have you exalted, and Lord, we can't lift you too high. My prayer for me would be that I would get rid of all of that junk that I allow to be in the center of my universe and may I make you my all in all. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here and if there are some here that don't know you as their savior, draw them to yourself because in you is the fullness of life and may we be proclaimers of the gospel for your glory and our good and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.